Hey, this is Watching, and you are now listening to the I Choose the Ladder podcast, a podcast for black women on the corporate climb. In today's episode, you meet Melissa Conley. Melissa is a first-generation college graduate who, in spite of starting high school in a truancy program, obtained three college degrees with a 4.0 GPA. She currently serves as a chief executive officer for One Goal, a national college access and success program. Prior to becoming CEO, Melissa was One Goal's first chief program officer. In this role, she was responsible for executing the programmatic vision to ensure all students have a legitimate opportunity to earn a college degree. Melissa has spent over a decade in education, leveraging her experiences, empathy, and drive to make certain her accomplishments are not an anomaly, but the norm for underserved youth. Melissa has earned a Bachelor of Arts from University of Illinois, Chicago, a Master of Arts in Teaching, and a Master's of Education Administration from Dominican University. She's also an alumna of the prestigious Surge Institute Fellowship for Emerging Leaders of Color in Education, but Melissa is most proud of the work she's doing as a mother to Ashlyn and Addie. This episode was really special to me because I think it's the first time that I actually discussed colorism and the impact of that on someone's career in the podcast. As you'll see, we'll talk about everything from family and adjusting her mindset on how she takes care of herself and her family to ensure that she's successful. We talk about speaking truth to power, family, the importance of mentorship. We cover the gamut. So get a notepad, get ready for the gems that Melissa is about to drop in this episode. Melissa, thank you so much for being a part of the podcast today. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to talk to you. Um, so I love talking to CEOs because if you listen to the podcast, you know that in my mind, the life of a CEO is private jets, stilettos, hair blowing in the winds, like telling people what to do, like waving your hands and like, you know, all that good stuff. So please confirm for me that that is what you do every day. I literally just pictured myself sitting in the corner of an airport trying to find Wi-Fi and eating a bag of pretzels for dinner. (laughs) Not quite, but close. (laughs) My image and your image, apparently. Um, So let's talk a little, we'll talk about the seat that you sit in today, um, because I think it's one that there is obviously a lot of misconceptions around like what it actually means to be a CEO. But for you, how did you decide um, that your current career journey was one that you would pursue? So think back to like college age. Like, did you know what you wanted to be? And if so, like, how does that happen? Yeah, so I definitely did not know what I wanted to be or do. Uh, Most of my college was focused on just trying to get out with some sort of degree or credential as fast as I could because I knew I was running out of time and money. Uh, And as a first-generation college student, I was struggling. I went to five different undergraduate institutions before I ultimately finished. Uh, and basically just got kicked out every time there was a financial hold on my account uh, mm-hmm. and then would go back to waiting tables. And so I was constantly just trying to figure out if I was going to be, uh, you know, a career woman or, you know, scrappy and hustle for the rest of my life um, in the way that I was raised. And uh, I remember at some point I picked my major because I just pulled out the course book that I remember, you remember those large catalogs you used to get from your institution, 
and I just literally was like, what major can I get out the fastest and the cheapest? Mm-hmm. And it was sociology. And so I became a sociology major. That was it. It was that simple. Um, but I was lucky, and I took a class uh, on race uh, with Dr. Amanda Lewis at University of uh, Illinois Chicago, and uh, we read a book called Race in the Schoolyard. It was all about how we develop our understanding of our racial identity at schools and typically on the playground by the way that kids talk and joke and the way that teachers respond to us. And I remember having this reflection of if this is where racial identity is constructed, that's where I want to be. And that led me to become a teacher. Got it. And so you talked briefly about, you know, the difference between how you were raised and um, kind of starting to figure out that vision for your life. What do you think motivated you to like consider a different way of living than how you were raised, right? So I'm assuming your parents didn't work in corporate or anything like super professional or any of those things. Like how did you have, like maybe not the foresight, but how did you, at that fork in the road, how did you know which way you wanted to go? Yeah, in in retrospect, I now realize that anger fueled a lot of my my desire for a different reality. So when I was in eighth grade, I had missed more than 60 days of school. Uh, in this, my mom was really struggling, raising six kids, and no one noticed if I didn't go to school, so I stopped going. Mm. And when I went to high school, I was enrolled in a truancy program where basically you were babysat and uh, until you were old enough to drop out legally in, in Illinois at the age of 16. And I remember feeling the label of being a truant student and hating how that felt, feeling like the entire world was looking at me as a truant student, and that was my whole identity. And I worked with my social worker, uh, Mrs. Jeter, who was uh, you know, my, my mentor and my advisor for a lot of my adolescence, uh, and she said, you know, ultimately, if you want to get out of truancy, I'll, I'll teach you what you have to do. I'll teach you who you have to talk to. I'll teach you what you need to say. And so she literally taught me to be a self-advocate. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I remember the first few adults that I spoke to uh, and, and said, I want to do better and I want to work harder. And they told me, no, you're not good enough. You're not smart enough. And I started to realize how much adults, can control the uh, dreams of young people for better or for worse. And in in my case, it was for worse. And I just became so attuned to the inequity I was experiencing as a a young black girl just outside the city of Chicago uh, that I decided to fight it. And uh, I really feel like I've been fighting the system ever since. And you mentioned, um, you know, your mentor, like that one person who out of however many adults you encountered who saw something in you and took you kind of under their wing. As you look back on the journey to get here, what role has mentorship played in your trajectory? And like, how have you found and cultivated your mentors? It's played a massive role. And it's something I wish I would have understood more deeply earlier in my career. I had no idea. I always thought about mentors as like a nice to have or, you know, something that uh, you should consider as, you know, if you pursue a career. Uh, Now I realize it's essential, specifically for black women. 
to me, it is it is not a nice to have. It is it is survival in many ways. Uh, and and I can go back to when in 2015, I had just taken a pretty significant demotion. Uh, so I moved from one organization to another. Went from managing a team of eight to managing a team of one. A, a you know. Probably, it was like a six-figure budget to a $500 budget, um, and I had I had gone to this new organization for all the right reasons. It was better for my family. The hours were uh, more flexible. It was exactly what we needed, and at the same time, was was feeling stuck and not knowing how to make sense of that move in in my own career ladder. And I decided to join a fellowship for leaders of color in education in Chicago, uh, a Surge Institute fellowship. And I was drawn to this fellowship specifically because the founder, Carmita Seman, was just this powerful black woman who would walk into a room and, and own it and everything in it. And there was just so much about who she was that I admired and and wanted to, and and that honestly is what, why I joined the fellowship. Since then, we've become very close friends, and she has served as my mentor more formally. And I can tell you, there's no way I would be in the seat that I am in now as CEO had it not been for Carmita, without a doubt. Uh, and I will say, now that I'm in this position, you might think you need mentors less because you know you've arrived. I will say I need more mentorship now than ever. Hmm. Why is that? I mean, the first answer is it's lonely at the top, right? There's there's uh, very few people who you can be your uh, full self with, um, and I think that becomes really challenging because the reality is you need to be an authentic leader in the position that you are. And so as you are considering how you're showing up for your people and yourself, you need people to hold up a mirror for you. Um, mm -hmm. And I have found that other women who've been in this seat have navigated that and, and have figured out tools and tips and tricks to make that learning curve a lot less steep. Uh, and so to avoid just falling on your face consistently in, in senior leadership roles, I think it's really important to learn from others. And then the second piece is, you know, I don't come like many white male CEOs. I don't come with uh, an existing network. I don't come with, uh, you know, the a ton of resources or um, a family that can, you know, connect me to others in this space. And so I have to create that. Mm -hmm. And what I've seen is that there are just so many incredible black women who are willing to step in and play that role wherever wherever you need. Uh, and I just I know that I wouldn't be successful had it, had it not been for the incredible black women who have stepped up in, in this moment. So think back to 25-year-old you, 27-year-old you, who um, is not the CEO, and knowing what you know now, what could you have done to help you start cultivating those relationships? Because I know that there are a lot of first-generation college students who are in spaces, but don't necessarily know the rules of those spaces, so they don't know what they don't know. So looking back now, 
How do you approach someone to be your mentor? How do you cultivate the kinds of networks that you know now are essential to be able to give you the access that you need to do the work that you need to do? I mean, for me, I think the part of the lesson learned was that there are formal fellowships and, and mentorship programs that can help ease some of the the gaps in your understanding about how to access others or the ways to show up in a room. And so in some ways I would say don't recreate the wheel. There are incredible networks of women of color who are out there seeking to mentor others. So find ways to plug into those spaces. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I didn't know that I needed that as part of my journey. And so I went a very traditional route early in my career and, you know, went to graduate school. And then when I felt like I didn't quite get what I needed, went back to graduate school and, you know, had done sort of these like formal paths to advance my career. But what I recognized is that uh, that, I, that wasn't helping me build the community that I needed around me. And so really tapping into the existing channels that are, that are out there, I think it's just really, I, I wish I would have done that earlier in my career. I think the second thing, and I just gave this advice to a, a woman that I mentor, uh, and you know, she mentioned, gosh, I get in these spaces and I just, it feels awkward and I don't really know what to say or what to do. Or, um, and for me, what I shared with her was don't, don't water down your value because when you're in a moment with a senior leader who's incredibly busy and, uh, you know, it's, you have a moment to, to connect with them, if you aren't clear on what makes you interesting, mm -hmm. uh, what, what are your areas of expertise, how could you add value to others? and you just see this as others pouring into you, it's a lot less of an interesting conversation. Mm -hmm. And so I, I wish I would have also gotten clear earlier in my uh, career what I was bringing to the conversation, what I was bringing to the relationship as well. Um, and you touched on this uh, briefly earlier, which my mouth dropped at first, but then I quickly recovered, when you said about your demotion, right? So you were kind of feeling stuck and you end up taking this job that was a demotion at the time, it felt very, I'm pretty sure it didn't feel great. When you are at places where you feel stuck in your career, what are some questions that you ask yourself to help you get unstuck? I think one of the, so one of the things that I've learned in my career is that we often struggle with the relationship between success and happiness. So what I have noticed, say, what say, I've, more. say say more about that. <laughs> say, please, that's a question. Like I don't know that I even know the difference. Yeah, I mean, what I have seen is a lot of us, especially earlier in our career, are still trying to find out who we are, what makes us happy, what kind of work is most fulfilling. And I think we have often, and I had often, thought that if I am successful, that I will be happy. And that relationship I have learned over my career is completely inverted. It is actually, if I am happy, then I will be successful. And I share that because at the end of the day, 
nobody wants to follow someone who's miserable. Nobody. I don't want to work for somebody who's miserable every day. I don't want to work for someone whose uh, life is, you know, not fulfilling, who uh, is, is not taking care of themselves. I don't want to follow that, and neither do others. And so at times when I felt really stuck, I tried to focus on my happiness. And I mean that broadly, not just in terms of what about my job is making me happy or not, or how might I find a, a job that's more fulfilling, but truly, am I taking care of myself? Is, does this situation or scenario work for the setup of my family and what's being demanded of me as a wife and mother? Uh, am I finding joy every day? Am I, are there things I'm doing outside of work that are fulfilling? Mm. And I think asking yourself many of these questions holistically, sometimes you realize actually your job is not the thing that is, that is making you feel stuck. Sometimes it's other things that are in your life that are contributing to this, this feeling of being stuck. Mm. And so I, I have found that at moments in my, and not just in my career, but in my life, where I am not waking up with joy, where I'm not laughing for me as if I'm not listening to music or singing, that something is wrong in my sphere, and mm -hmm. I actually have to take a look at my life across multiple dimensions mm -hmm. and really reflect inward about what is working and what's not. And, and sometimes the answer is it's my job. <laughs> That's the thing. And uh, I need to change either my role or the organization or the type of work that I'm doing. Uh, but I have found that it is uh, often not as simple as, as just the position you're in. And uh, that, that sometimes is, is harder to both reflect on, but also know what to do with. Mm -hmm. um, so as you've gotten more senior, um, do you think about the stereotypes that come along with being a black woman, right? Like, so do you ever worry about being labeled as like the angry black woman or being too aggressive or being any of those things? Because I would think that even though you have a board, if it fails, it's your fault. If it succeeds, it's your team's victory, right? And so how you communicate messages may be taking different, like in a different way because it's coming from you. So have you adjusted your communication style or even think about that stuff as you've grown up the ranks? Yeah. So. I'm reflecting on Dr. Beverly Tatum and uh, some of her work in the way that she describes a lot of uh, uh, racial oppression being like smog in the air that we're all breathing. And I think so much of how black women do or do not show up, I'm, I'm always aware Right? It's in the air. I'm always aware that that is showing up. It's part of what people are thinking. It's in my own internalized depression and how I think about what's acceptable and what's not. Uh, and yet, I can sort of notice it and let it pass. Mm -hmm. And so what I have tried to do is be more aware that that exists. Uh, but the, we, we've done this practice at, at One Goal internally uh, where we have sort of given a name to oppression and let it go. Like, oh, that's oppression. That's what that is. I see you, and I'm going to choose in this moment to let you sit over there and show up the way that I need to show up. 
which has been a really just powerful exercise in acknowledging those things that, that are happening. I will say concretely, the first time that I had a big chop and uh, went natural and had a, a you know short hairdo, uh, one of my direct reports at my former organization said, wow, you were intimidating before and, and now you look really intimidating. And in that moment, I remember thinking, ah, here it is. Here's, here's that smog that black women have to deal with every day because I changed my hair color and now that means something about, I changed my hair cut and color and now that means something about my personality. Uh, and at the same time, I remember also being like, and? And so I'm intimidating. Uh, that to me says more about you than it does about me. And so I will not, I own that. I refuse to own that label. Mm. Uh, and, you know, it's not easy. It is work that we are all doing every day. It's part of the psychological toll that we pay as women of color uh, in professional spaces. Uh, and at the same time, I can't change who I am. Mm. I, I told my husband recently, so I was, I was sort of debating as a, as a CEO, I always dye my hair. Uh, it's, it's always like a different color every three or four weeks. Right now it's sort of a bright red and I'll go blonde and I'll go, you know, rose gold. And uh, I try, I just, it's always been what I've done. Um, I've played with my hair. That's who I am. And I remember when I got this promotion, you know, I, I, had told my husband that I didn't know if, you know, as a CEO, do I, do I still do that? Is that, are people going to feel some kind of way about, you know, black women changing their hair color? And someone had, had said something about my headshot, not being able to keep up with my hairstyle and all of those things. And I remember just after some conversation and reflection saying at the end of the day, my, my board knew who they hired. And I've always been this person. And so if at some point they decide that this isn't the person that's going to lead our organization into the future, ensuring that more kids get a real opportunity to graduate from college, uh, then they're going to make that decision. But they knew who they hired when they hired me. And I, and I have to, at the end of the day, know that I, am, I can go to bed at night without having compromised my sense of self. So how important do you think that is that the statement the board knew who they hired when they hired me right because we talk about i think and you hear it a lot around showing up as your authentic self and people like for me i wear my hair natural so do i go do i straighten my hair for the job interview do i not straighten my hair like how much of your authentic self do you show up with and like and if we're being honest corporate and like they're more accepting of more some forms of authentic selves than others and so for you and for the black women who are listening who may not feel like they can show up um, as themselves, how important is it for you to do your work knowing that the people who hired you knew exactly who they were hiring when they hired you? Yeah, and I really appreciate that question and it makes me want to give a little bit more context as well because uh, what I don't want to do is not own my own privilege. Uh, so, so two things. First of all, I was an internal candidate for this senior position. And so I think part of my comfort in showing up came from the fact that I could let my work speak for itself. You know, I had five years at the organization previous to applying for this position and could speak concretely about my, my results and my impact. And so 
I think that that helps me be more confident about showing up who as who I am in that space. And honestly, at that point, it would have been awkward if I didn't uh, show up as myself. And I think they would have been able to, to sniff that out very quickly. Uh, and so that context is, is um, important. I also think, you know, the the privilege that I I own is, uh, you know, I'm I'm light skinned, and I will say that I have seen in some spaces, uh, and I know this is no surprise to you or your audience. I've seen in some spaces that, you know, I can be more bold because, you know, I I can make some people comfortable, uh, and. I, I hate that that's the reality, and I also own that it is, and and that that doesn't feel great. It doesn't feel good to say out loud, but I also know that it's true. I will say this though, um, given those that context, and given still my decision to show up as a, you know my authentic self, um, I don't know how you lead any other way. I really don't. I just I have seen so many of us, you know, hide and have masks, and um, and obviously you have to be disciplined about what risks you're willing to take in which environments, and you know wh where your sort of close circles of trust are and are not, and uh, that does require a level of awareness and and cognition that is really unfair, but is also our reality. And at the same time, I have said to multiple people that this seat has required me to be more present and more myself than any other position I've held in my career. Hmm. Because the kind of challenges that people bring me today are so are highly complex, highly complex, multifaceted, often uh, very uh, emotionally driven, and, and have real risk and consequence. And so if I don't show up to those spaces really present and really comfortable with who I am, all of who I am, it's almost impossible to do the work. I can't have an inner dialogue about am I showing up the way that I need to and, and you know, am I showing up in a way that makes you comfortable and solve really complex challenges about our financial run rate into the future and the ways in which that does or does not compromise our programmatic model, right? Those are, those are the kinds of challenges you're grappling with every day. Mm. And so it's, it's, it's been an interesting reflection for me because I've become even more acutely aware of how challenging it is for all of us to be set up for success because of what that requires of you and what is expected of us as black women. Mm. Uh, and and yet, I think, I mean, to go back to your earlier question, this is why you need a community of people around you to help you with this, because it is not easy. And it, and it is, I would love to say, you know, I, the way that I'm communicating about who I am and how I show up is, is something I wake up with and go to bed with every day, but it, it's not. It's something I have to continue to work at and remind myself. And there are days where I take a hit and I have to pick myself back up. And I could not do that if it weren't for a community of women who were around me to, to help me work through some of those things. Um, with the word ambitious, does it feel like something that's true to who you identify yourself as? Like, would you say I'm an ambitious woman? I would say I'm an ambitious woman, yes. 
And so the flip side, I guess, of that question is how do you balance being an ambitious woman with all of the other things that are like vying for your mental space and time? So you mentioned you're a wife and you're a mom and you have things for yourself that like you are trying to make sure that you're whole and all of those things. And so how do you balance? Because that's something that also comes up a lot for like the audience that listens. It's like, I want to like kill it, but I also want to kill it as a mom and as a wife. And I also don't want to like kill myself, right? And run myself into the ground. So for you, how do you balance ambition plus, 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 plus? Yeah, I have thought about that a lot. And I will say when my kids were younger, I really struggled with the question of who's going to take a hit this week. Is it going to be my job and my team? Is it going to be my kids, my husband, or me? Someone's got to take a hit, and I don't know who it's going to be. Uh, and sometimes I'd be really intentional and be like, all right, this is a week where I'm going to put it all in at work, and I'm going to work long hours. And, and then I would say, you know what, I'm going to take a couple days off, and my work might take a hit, but I need to be there for my family. And it was almost like there was a point system. <laughs> and sort of a finite amount of points, and then I have to distribute them uh, amongst the things that I care about. Wow, does that set us up for failure. I mean, you just you can't win at that game. You just can't win at that game. And so I had to be intentional about, I'm not going to play that game anymore. I'm just not. Mm-hmm. And I've talked about this construct uh, with a couple folks that I, that I mentor where I have this aha, that I didn't, I was creating this dichotomy of you either were selfish or selfless. And you you had, there was a binary. And in every decision you made, you were either being selfish because you were focusing on your career or you were being selfless and you were focusing on, you know, your your family and just being there for everybody. And and what I was recognizing is that there was, like, no place for me to focus on myself in all of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so what I started to do was, was really reorient. How is there a third way? Is there a way that no one's really taking a hit? So the example that I often give, which I know is, is silly, but it's, it's concrete and, and it's helped me totally reorient to a new paradigm. And that's, uh, I was, it was one of those days where it was an insane day at work and I hadn't gotten a a workout and I I am committed to daily workouts. I still am. I I don't miss a single one. Daily. Yeah. (laughs) What? Girl, what? Daily workouts. It is my, I mean, it's like church for me. I just. It is, I need it. it. It keeps me mentally healthy. It's part of my winning formula. I can't be a strong mother, wife, CEO if I am not taking care of myself. And so I committed to daily workouts. But it was one of those days where it was a crazy morning and I was, you know, off and out the door at 5 a.m. and working whatever it was, 10, 11 hours. And my daughter had a soccer game and she was really upset that she didn't think I was going to be able to make it. And so now I'm trying to race home. I didn't get my workout in. And I'm feeling like, all right, somebody's got to take a hit. And I had this moment where I was like, wait, Melissa, stop. There's, there's, there's got to be a, a way that I haven't, there's something that I haven't considered here. 
And so I, I literally just came up with a different solution. I thought, you know what? And I, what I'm going to do is I'm going to go to her game. And then when I'm there, I'm going to run a couple laps around the field and get my workout in. And, and then I'll go home. And it was so simple, so simple, right? Like, but I was, I was operating in this paradigm that someone had to take a hit. And so I had to choose yes or no, black or white, right or left. And I wasn't giving myself space to think, is there another way to do this? Mm. And honestly, asking myself that question, is there another way to do this or to think about this, has illuminated so many different solutions. Mm. Even today, so I'm about to be on the road for eight days. And my daughter was, last night, was really upset that, you know, I'm not going to see you for eight days. And, you know, I... I'm sad that I'm not, we're not going to be able to have dinner together tomorrow because you're going to be at the office. And so I was reflecting on that. And I realized that I could take some of my meetings in the office in the morning, take a call on the commute home, and actually be in, home in time for dinner. And that was possible. But it was a solution I honestly would have never previously considered. I would have just let someone take the hit, and usually that person was me uh, or my family. And I just don't operate like that anymore. And it has been profoundly healthy, helpful to re-engineer sort of how I think about that. And, and the reality is, and this I cannot stress enough, I honestly believe, and this goes back to the happy people are successful, not successful people are happy. I strongly believe that being a good mother in a way that makes me proud, and then however that's defined, I know you know I'm not. I would never get into debate about what makes a good mother, but how I define it for me and my kids, uh, what makes me a good wife, a lot of those things are the exact same things that make me a good CEO. Mm -hmm. I, I promise you, and I know that that's. And my direct reports have said that to me. They said they they will follow me. They're excited about my leadership. They work hard because of who I am, not in spite of who I am. And I think I've been able to really center and anchor in that when things get hard. Um, so you've mentioned that you mentor people, right? Um, I'm assuming some of them are, you know, young women of color. Are there mistakes that you see women of color making in the workplace um, that their non-Black counterparts are not making that could be hindering their progression that they may not be aware of? I'll tell you the one that, honestly, it, it, it makes me somewhat emotional because I see so many young women of color that I think are brilliant and have incredible potential, in some cases, really crash and burn in a, in a really just destructive way. And uh, I've, I've tried sometimes successfully to intervene and to coach and support, and sometimes really unsuccessfully. And it's, it's around this concept of authentic leadership. So I think that's, that's something, you know, in our, in our space, whether you're in education or in any other sector where people are talking about this concept of being an authentic leader and showing up as yourself, you know, I've mentioned it multiple times on this call. And the, that is right. It's, so important to be who you are and to, to not compromise on, on your values and to, you know, say what you mean and mean what you say. Those things are critical for, for strong leadership. And 
yet it doesn't mean that you can be a jerk, right? It doesn't mean that you can say things in a way that is haphazard or harmful to others or uh, isn't thoughtful or curious or uh, humble enough to know if you've made a mistake. Uh, and so I think there are ways you can speak truth to power. There are ways in which you can dismantle systems that uh, are not serving you or others that honestly serve your organization better in the long run, that uh, help those around you dismantle systems alongside of you that uh, honestly just make the workplace a better place to work. Mm. And there are ways in which you could say the exact same things that, that don't do any of those things, that actually become really toxic, that point fingers but don't, don't offer solutions, that um, you know tear people down. And that's that's not helpful. Mm. And and I, I think there's so much power in what young professionals are bringing to the table. I know there's, you know, I'm, I'm at the end of the, or I guess the beginning of sort of the millennial generation, so I'm keenly aware of all of the critiques about who we are and what we bring to corporate America and what we don't bring to corporate America. Uh, but I, I see a ton of value I've seen it firsthand, and clearly I'm a little biased, a ton of value of what young professionals are bringing to the table. I mean, I think a, a lens towards equity like no generation has seen before, uh, an openness to how the work gets done, a creativity that I think is just, gosh, if we could catalyze uh, that group of young professionals, I think it could change the way work happens. And I'm not saying that uh, to be, um, you know, to, I'm not exaggerating. Like, I, I really do believe that. And at the same time, if we can't figure out how to how to capture that, how to do that in a way that calls people in instead of calling people out, that you know builds bridges uh, amongst different generations, among, amongst different cultures, um, then it, it you know it's a it's a fast way to the door, and and that that really does break my heart because I've seen it time and time again, and I think there's just more we could be doing to help help young people address you know, the, the solutions that they see in the space that others don't see and the problems that they see in the space that others don't see, but in a way that elevates their career. Mm. And then one last question before the lightning round. So knowing what you know now about success as a black woman in this space, what are some skills that you think young black women in college should be developing now to make that transition from being a student into being a professional a little bit smoother? I mean, a lot of them I would describe as you know, you, how you, it, it sounds so funny because being an educator, I'm like, you, how you work with others. Um, that feels like one of my classroom rules from when I, I taught fifth grade. Um, but just so much of the work we do now is, is social. You know, there are obviously some jobs where you sit behind a desk for hours at a time, but uh, I don't know any executive leadership job that looks like that. You know, so much of what you do is about how you connect with others, how you resolve conflict, 
how you listen and respond effectively, how you uh, how you ultimately uh, work with others to problem solve around complex problems that maybe you haven't uh, focused on before. And so I think a lot of those skills, honestly, people are working on but don't always know how to translate to a professional space or don't even know that that's what they're doing in, in some spaces. Mm -hmm. um, so when I think about, you know, ways in which you are, you know, engaged in networks outside of your course study, right? So like your classes are helpful in terms of content, but really like that is not necessarily going to be what uh, allows you to develop executive leadership skills. And so if you can join fellowships, you know, join professional networks where you're really connecting with others and learning some of those skills, I think that goes a really long way. Okay, so now we're gonna go to my favorite part. It's the lightning round. Don't overthink this. It's literally the first thing that comes to your mind. So what's okay. one piece of career advice you wish you'd gotten earlier in your career? Surround yourself with people who are smarter than you. Hmm. What's the career lesson that took you the longest to learn but has had the biggest impact? Self-care is not a luxury but an essential. Hmm. What's one book that you could read over and over again? Just Mercy by Brian Stevenson. And then lastly, we know that most career decisions are made when you are not in the room. What do you hope people are saying about you when you're not in the room? I hope people say she is honest, caring, dedicated, and will do anything for our students. Wow, I mean, Melissa was phenomenal. Um, I took so many notes during our initial conversation and listening to it again, I, you know, discovered new things that I, I think I can apply to my own life, but you know that I always want to end, um, each episode with three key takeaways that I got. Um, the first one is there's a way to be true to yourself that can add value to your company. So look to find the intersection of where your authentic self and business objectives intersect. Um, two, Self-care is not a luxury, it is an essential. I'm feeling that to the core, especially getting to the end of the year and feeling kind of, you know, tired and burnt out because so much has happened. And lastly, mentors become more important the more senior you get in your career. So start building your board of directors now. Um, there have been tons of episodes that have talked about how to find mentors, how to maintain relationships. If you have not listened to them, please go back and do that because the more senior you get, the higher, the louder you get, the more important having good counsel um, is going to be. As always, if you want to keep the conversation going, join the mailing list by texting CLIMB, C-L-I-M-B, to 66866. Again, text CLIMB to, C, uh, to 66866. You can also join our Facebook group at I Choose the Ladder or on Instagram at I Choose the Ladder. And until next time, thank you for listening.